You are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode number two in the series. Today's episode is titled Cyclops. And so welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and you are now listening to episode number two of Odyssey the Podcast. Now, I've decided to title this particular episode Cyclops for reasons that will very quickly become apparent. But before we dive into the episode, just a quick recap of where we left things at the end of episode number one. You will recall that Odysseus, his 600 men on 12 ships, had set out from Troy after burning the city to the ground. And their goal was to make it back home to Ithaca, what should have been maybe a 6 to 10 to maybe even 12 day sail, depending on the weather and that sorts of thing. Well, on their way home, they've already had a few adventures. And their most recent adventure, in fact, the adventure where we left things at a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of episode number one, involved Odysseus and his 12 hand-picked bravest men deciding to explore a particular island. And as you will recall, Odysseus and his men had found themselves on that island and eventually inside of a cave. And then I believe I'd informed you the following. And then Odysseus and his men began to die, horrifying, slow, and unspeakable deaths. Well, Odysseus looked on, powerless to save them. And so, folks... What I want to do now at the start of episode number two is go back in time a little bit and retrace the steps which led to that particularly grim and gruesome moment. So, episode two begins right now. Odysseus and his twelve brave men entered the mysterious cave. And immediately when they began to reconnoiter, they recognized that the cave really served a triple purpose, if you will. The cave was clearly a barn. Uh, it was set up for sheep and for goats. The cave was a dairy operation. They could see buckets and milking equipment and, and huge barrels of cheese and that sort of thing off in one corner of the cave. And third, the cave appeared to be a home. There was a fireplace, there was a hearth, and there was some sort of a willow rush mat over in the corner, which looked like, well, it was large enough to accommodate a whole family of dairy farmers, if you will. Well, Odysseus and his men, after they reconnoitered the cave, Odysseus' men immediately began to get anxious. And folks, there was a good reason for this. You have to recall that Odysseus's hand-picked 12 bravest men were all seasoned, battle-hardened veterans of 10 years on the battlefields of Troy. And they knew, because, well, any soldier worth his salt would have known, that caves are, well, right up there in Military Strategy 101, a clear-cut and absolutely certain death trap. There's only one entrance to a cave. So the last thing you want to go doing as a soldier is blunder into a cave, particularly when you don't know anything about the occupant of the cave, and then find yourself trapped inside. 
So after a quick reconnoiter, Odysseus's twelve hand-picked brave men turned to their captain and immediately counseled some common sense. They suggested, Captain, uh, why don't we just grab some of the cheese, whatever we can manage to carry, maybe herd some of the finer-looking lambs and goats, and get out of this cave, return to our boat, and get off this island before, well, the owner of the cave returns, or is any the wiser that we were even here? And ladies and gentlemen, it would have been a good strategy. But Odysseus turned his men down, insisting that they sit still and wait for the owner of the cave to return. In his own words, here's what he said. My companions, they urged me not to stay there in the cave, but I did not take their advice, although it uh, would have been better for all of us if I had. But I wanted to see what sort of a creature lived in that cave. And so... The twelve brave men, overruled by Odysseus, their commander-in-chief, sat down and patiently waited for the owner of the cave to return. Well, sometime around dinner time, the owner did return. The huge front entrance to the cave darkened, and some creature large enough to block out most of the sunlight coming into the cave bent double and then stood up to his full towering height inside of that cave. Now, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, Odysseus provides us with no detailed, precise description of what a cyclops looks like, but we do know the following. The men were all, quote, appalled by the creature's thundering voice and his gigantic body. And the men, of course, were also equally appalled by the one massive, solitary, gigantic eyeball perched right there in the middle of the Cyclops' head. Well, Odysseus and his men, seeing the Cyclops, hid behind barrels of whey and wheels of cheese. And the Cyclops, completely oblivious to his stranger guests, well, he went about his evening routine, driving a whole herd of sheep and goats back into the back corner of the cave, proceeding with milking them, throwing in some firewood, and then, with his huge, improbably long and powerful arm, rolling a massive boulder back in front of the entrance to the cave. A rock so huge that Odysseus reports that it would have taken 22 strong carts to have dragged that rock from the entrance of the cave. And so, Odysseus and his twelve men were now, much as the man had feared and predicted, trapped inside of a Cyclops' cave. Well, eventually, the Cyclops completed his evening routines, the sheep and the goats had been milked, uh, the fire had been set for the evening, and only then did the Cyclops look around and notice that there were stranger guests in his cave. Well, the Cyclops, from his towering height, looked down and spoke his first words. Strangers, who are you? Why are you here? Are you here on a trading voyage? Or do you wander at random over the seas, like pirates, risking your own lives and bringing ruin to other men? And folks, of course, 
If Odysseus wanted to answer that question honestly, he might have replied something along the lines of, well, uh, yeah, pirates pretty well does sum us up, but in polite company, we actually prefer to refer to ourselves as seafaring men. But instead of that honest response, Odysseus chose to launch into a pro forma diplomatic request for hospitality from the Cyclops. So stepping forward and first informing the Cyclops that they were a party of Greeks who had recently successfully destroyed the mighty kingdom of Troy, Odysseus launched into his request for hospitality. Here's what he said. Cyclops, we have come here as suppliants in the hope that you will afford us your hospitality and give us the gifts that it is proper for a host to provide his guest with. So please, kind sir, do not deny us. We are your guests. And Zeus, Zeus is on our side. Since Zeus takes care of strangers, of guests, and of all of those in need. Well, it was a lovely speech, it was diplomatic, and it reminded the Cyclops of his duty as a host to the guests who had blundered into his cave. But folks, the response of the Cyclops was, well, hardly heartening. <laughs> we Cyclopes, we Cyclopes care nothing for Zeus, or for any god for that matter. If, if I choose to spare you and your friends, it will not be out of any fear of Zeus. I will only spare you if I'm in the mood to, not because of the rules of any god. And then, ladies and gentlemen, before Odysseus and his men had opportunity to comprehend that speech and the grim implications of it, the Cyclops proceeded to demonstrate just the sort of hospitality to strangers which he and the other Cyclopes apparently living on the island preferred. Odysseus provides the grim account. The Cyclops then reached his hands towards my men. He seized two of them and knocked them hard against the ground, like puppies. Soon the floor of the cave was wet with their brains. And then he ripped them, limb by limb. And he ate them, devouring flesh, guts, bones, leaving nothing of my men at all. And as Odysseus and his now ten brave men stood in numb comprehension watching this barbaric ritual, the Cyclops, quite nonchalant and entirely unworried by what he had just done or the response of the guests in his cave to what he had done, the Cyclops simply wandered to the back of the cave poured himself a massive jug of whey, gulped it down, belched mightily, and then in entire and complete fearlessness of the Greeks in the cave, the Cyclops lay down on his willow rush mat 
and fell sound asleep on the floor of the cave. Now, as you can no doubt imagine, folks, Odysseus' first and immediate instinct and response was to draw his sword and kill the Cyclops then and there as he slept. And folks, Odysseus actually had the sword out and aimed at the Cyclops' liver when it suddenly occurred to him that if he did kill the Cyclops now, whoever satisfying that would be, well, the fate of he and his men afterwards would be slow starvation in a cave in the company of a rotting Cyclops' corpse. Folks, there was no way in the world that Odysseus and the combined strength of his men were moving the rock away from the front entrance of that cave. So that meant so much as they wanted to kill the Cyclops now, they didn't dare. They were going to have to stay in the cave until they came up with some sort of a plan, some sort of a strategy to get the Cyclops to move the rock away from the front entrance and then somehow to allow Odysseus and his men to escape. Well, night came. And we have no idea whether Odysseus sat up all night desperately trying to conceive of some sort of an escape plan or whether rather he was just so numb from watching the cannibalism of his two men that he could not think straight at all. We don't know. All we do know, folks, is by the morning, Polytropus Odysseus, the master tactician, cunning, crafty, resourceful Odysseus, had come up with absolutely no plan at all. And so the next morning, the inevitable happened. The Cyclops woke up, he belched, he farted, he drank a prodigious quantity of whey, and then he played a grim and macabre game of hide-and-seek Greek, as Odysseus and his men did their best to hide behind wheels of cheese and barrels of whey. But to no avail. Soon, two of the men had been caught, captured, and wolfed down the mighty maw of the Cyclops' mouth, as Odysseus and his now eight remaining brave men looked on. Well, following breakfast, the Cyclops got on with his shepherding day. He whistled to his sheep and goats, and they dutifully trundled to the front door of the cave. The Cyclops went to the front door and easily, with just one arm, rolled away the massive boulder barring the entrance. Well, the sheep and the goats headed out of the cave and down the fields to pasture. The Cyclops turned, poked his head back in, and no doubt said something clever and witty along the lines of, So, I will then be seeing you for dinner this evening, my Greek friends, before rolling the rock back in front of the cave's entrance. Well, immediately, the men, while the remaining men, put their heads together and started to formulate a plan. They knew that they had to come up with something before evening when the Cyclops returned, or two more of those men would be dinner dates, for the Cyclops. And the first idea, of course, which would have been banged around, was the straightforward suicide rush at the entrance. Simply wait until the Cyclops had rolled the rock away from the entrance on his return, and then Odysseus and all eight men at once charged to the open door. 
But the military veterans in the group knew that the odds of success of that plan weren't very high. The Cyclops was huge. The Cyclops was fast. Most of the nine men would likely die in the entrance before they got out of the cave. And even those who did get by the Cyclops would then have to out-sprint a much larger and longer-legged creature all the way back down to the pastures to their boat down by the shore. So the odds of a suicide rush at the entrance, well, they didn't look very good. And Odysseus kept thinking, searching, racking his brain for some better and more elegant plan. And then sometime during the morning, Odysseus came up with his brilliant scheme. Suddenly, he reports, a good plan, a very good plan, appeared in my mind. Now what Odysseus decided to do, folks, was to blind the Cyclops. And his reasoning was really very elegant and simple. If it ultimately did come down to some sort of a suicide rush to the entrance of the cave, well, a blind Cyclops certainly stacked the odds much better on the side of the escaping Greeks. But the plan immediately raised a new problem. Because how do you go about blinding a creature who is so high and towers so over you? I, the problem Odysseus recognized right away is that none of his brave men had brought throwing spears or bows or arrows into the cave with them. So they had no weapon. There's no way that they could reach the Cyclops' eye. And that meant to blind the Cyclops, Odysseus knew, he was going to have to come up with some scheme, some strategy to get that Cyclops' head down to ground level and then to get that head to hold very still. Well, that took another while of thought from the clever Polytropus hero of our story. But eventually, ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus, with a twinkle in his eye and a grin on his face, called to his eight surviving crew members. Boys, he said, here's what I need you to do. And what Odysseus did is he motioned to his men. He instructed them to go into the back corner of the cave. Now, earlier in the day, Odysseus had seen in the back corner of that cave what looked like the large trunk of a delimbed tree. So he instructed his men to lift up the heavy trunk and to drag it over near the fire pit into the light. And then Odysseus narrates to us what he did next. I cut off a section of the tree, about six feet long, and I handed it to my comrades. I told them to plane it down, and when it was smooth, I sharpened one end of it to a fearsome point. And then I took that pointed end, and I set it among the coals of the fire to make the point even harder. Well, folks, as Odysseus was doing this, his crew, obliging and participating in the instructions as directed, still had absolutely no idea at all what their captain had in mind. So Odysseus had explained that what they were doing is that they were fashioning a giant pointy stick. And once that giant pointy stick was fashioned, Odysseus said, 
we're going to use that pointy stick to ram it into the eye of the Cyclops. If you think about it, boys, it will be like sticking a toothpick into a grape, but on a rather larger and more bloody scale. So, that covered how they were going to blind the Cyclops. But it left rather unresolved the larger problem of how do you get a gigantic creature like a Cyclops to voluntarily bring its head down to ground level and then to hold that eyeball very still such that the pointy stick team could then jam the pointy stick into the gelatinous eyeball of the still Cyclops. Well, Odysseus began a systematic search of the cave, looking for the tool he was going to need to bring that Cyclops down to ground level. And eventually, after exploring all sorts of possibilities, suddenly with a shout of delight, Odysseus saw what he needed. Ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus saw a wineskin. I know how I'm going to blind that Cyclops, Odysseus thought, laughing at his own wit. I'm going to get that Cyclops blind drunk. Now, before proceeding with the wineskin and how a wineskin would get a Cyclops blind drunk, folks, I need to beg your indulgence. We need a quick digression and a backstory, if you will, on the wineskin in question, and specifically what was in it and how that wineskin made its way into a Cyclops's cave. So the story goes something like this. Ladies and gentlemen, it seems like a long time ago, but only a few days ago, you will recall, Odysseus and his men put the city of Ismarus to the sword. It was a complete and thorough sacking of a city. There was butcheries, there was burning, there was rape, there was pillaging, there was the murdering of small children. The standard heroic Greek stuff. But as the city was being put to the sword, Odysseus had given the men on his team very explicit and precise instructions. Whatever you do, boys, do not damage the temple of the god Apollo situated in the center of the city. Leave the people in that temple safe. Don't touch the temple or its property. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there was a reason for this. Odysseus was a gods-fearing man. And he knew that the Olympian gods couldn't have cared less about burning, butcheries, raping, or murdering of children. But what really upset an Olympian god is if their own personal and private property was in any way damaged during the above activities. And folks, those of you who have already traveled with me through Trojan War, the podcast, know just the misery that an offended Olympian god especially the Olympian god Apollo, can wreck onto people he's offended by if you have done something to his property. Just ask Agamemnon, king of kings, how offending Apollo turned out for him. So, in this particular case, Odysseus's men destroyed the city of Ismarus, burned it to the ground, but left the temple of the god Apollo intact. 
and following the complete destruction of Ismarus, Odysseus and his men went to the temple to make their offerings and their libations to the god. Where, of course, they were met by a very grateful and relieved priest of the god Apollo, happy that he had been spared and his temple had not been burned. And that's where the wineskin came from. The priest of the god Apollo handed the wineskin to Odysseus as a gift and explained to Odysseus that Ismarus, of course, was famous for its wine, but the particular vintage in this wineskin was uniquely special. It was so powerful and potent a distillate, the priest explained, that it could only be consumed at a ratio of 20 parts water to one part wine. But if you mixed it in that ratio, the priest assured Odysseus, it was the finest drink known to man. Well, Odysseus had taken the wineskin. The crew had sailed away from the burning wreckage of the city of Ismarus, and Odysseus had forgot about the wineskin completely. That is, until he and his men had decided to explore the island, which turned out to be the island of the Cyclopes. Now Odysseus, like a good guest, when he set out on his journey, brought along a series of gifts for his possible host. And Odysseus had decided that the wineskin was absolutely perfect. It was portable, it had this wonderful libation in it, and Odysseus's plan was simple. If he received wonderful hospitality, wherever he landed, he would simply then, after he received the hospitality, pull out the wineskin, pour a mug of the distillate for his guest, add the appropriate 20 parts water to one part wine, and the two of them would toast each other in good friendship and health. But now, now that Odysseus was in a cave with a cyclops who was proving to be somewhat less than hospitable, it occurred to Odysseus that he could turn this potential guest gift on its head and completely upside down and use the potent distillate inside of that wineskin to get his unfortunate and unfriendly host blind drunk. And then once he is blind drunk, Odysseus knew my pointy stick team can ram that stick into the Cyclops's eye and blind him for real. So folks, that was the plan. The wineskin was ready, Odysseus had that, and his pointy stick team had concealed themselves in the back corner of the cave behind a few barrels of cheese. So now it was simply time to sit and wait patiently for evening and the Cyclops to return. Odysseus's plan was then to step gamely forward, invite the Cyclops to drink some of the wine, and do his level best to get the Cyclops drunk. Well, eventually, the Cyclops returned to his cave. But folks here, the plan nearly fell off the rails completely. And the reason why is it turns out that a hungry Cyclops is an impatient Cyclops. And before Odysseus had an opportunity to step forward and offer his libations to his host, well, the Cyclops went looking for Greeks to eat. Well, Odysseus's men scattered and a grim game of hide-and-seek Greek ensued. And soon, folks, another two men were down the Cyclops's massive, hungry maw of a mouth. But Odysseus, undeterred and recognizing that 
this was their only possible escape strategy, then, to his credit, stepped bravely forward, wineskin and mugs in hand, and offered a drink to the Cyclops. Cyclops, here is some wine to wash down your meal of human flesh. And I want you to know just how good this wine is. In fact, Cyclops, I had brought this wine to your home as a gift, hoping that you would show hospitality to me and my men. And before the Cyclops had opportunity to think through the malice behind Odysseus' intent, Odysseus had poured a massive mug of the entirely undiluted wine and held it out to the eager Cyclops, who immediately took the bait and chugged down the wine in one massive gulp. Well, within a moment, a smile had spread over the Cyclops' face. The Cyclops grinned. He praised the overwhelming quality of the distillate. And then, eagerly leaning forward, he demanded more. Give me some more, I beg you! And so Odysseus willingly obliged pouring another undiluted mug of the powerful drink. Three times I filled the mug, and three times, that fool, he drained it. Well, very soon, folks, the Cyclops was seriously drunk, and then everything that Odysseus had been hoping for began to happen. The Cyclops, recognizing he could no longer stand without swaying, chose to sit down, and soon the Cyclops was leaning, propped against one wall of the cave, swaying back and forth and continuing to drink. And Odysseus, putting on his best drinking buddy disguise, sat beside the towering Cyclops and continued to ply the Cyclops with more and more and more wine from that wineskin. Well, the Cyclops was having a fine old time, and soon, as he got even more and more intoxicated, he turned and asked a friendly question to his drinking buddy and companion sitting beside him. So, so, tell me, tell me your, tell me your name, little man, because I want to give you a, a guest gift later. Uh, it will be something that you really like. And ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus then reports to us, what happened next. So, I leaned over and said, as plausibly as I could, Cyclops, you asked me for my name, so I will reveal it to you. But then, you must give me the gift that you promised. Cyclops, my name is Nobody. Now, ladies and gentlemen, a short digression in our story is in order at this point. Because you're likely asking the obvious question. Why on earth did Odysseus not give his real name? And if he did not give his real name, why did he come up with something as ridiculous as nobody? So here's what we need to know. Folks, back in the Bronze Age of this particular story, 
names were a source of incredibly great and dangerous power. And the reason why is because if you seriously wished to do damage to a man, well, one option, of course, was to kill him in battle. But if that wasn't going to work for you, then an even more reliable option was to call down a curse from the gods onto that man. So, well, I suppose a quick primer on cursing is in order at this point in our story. Because cursing required a whole series of variables to all fall perfectly into place if the curse was going to work. So first of all, of course, folks, you had to determine the deity you were going to call on. It helped if it was a deity that you had made lots of offerings and bribes to in the past. Next, you had to decide on the specific contents or details of the curse. Did you want your enemy to, I don't know, receive a plague of boils, or to be impotent forever, or to have a nagging and shrewish wife, or, well, you name whatever you want. The gods were very obliging in terms of the specifics. Some of the deities even kind of improvised and got creative on their own without your suggestions. And then there was the final thing that you needed, and this was the most important. You needed a reliable delivery address. The avenging deity needed to know who to deliver the curse to. And the more details you could provide, well, the more likely it was that your curse would actually be delivered as requested. And there were three details in the Bronze Age, which pretty well guaranteed you a gold-plated, reliably delivered curse. If you knew your enemy's name, your enemy's father's name, and the home address of your enemy's kingdom. And folks, with those three magic demographic details in place, well, if you had an obliging deity on your side, you could curse your enemy real, real good. So, back to our story. When the Cyclops had turned and asked, So what is your name, little man? Well, Odysseus, who would have been trained about these things from birth, immediately and instinctively recognized that this was an enemy asking, and so Odysseus immediately and instinctively lied. But, since the Cyclops was now seriously drunk, Odysseus didn't really even bother to lie very carefully. He didn't provide a plausible fake name. Instead, he simply turned around and said as follows. My name? My name is Nobody. That is the only thing my mother, my father, or my friends have ever called me. Just plain old Nobody. And folks, it's a testament to just how blind drunk our Cyclops was that instead of questioning this ridiculous intelligence, the Cyclops actually thought it was rather clever and took it all at face value. The Cyclops responded, <laughs> Well then, nobody, here is the gift that I promised I would give you. Nobody, I am going to eat you last of all. And then with those final words, the drunk Cyclops toppled completely over crashed face-first onto the floor, 
vomited up a prodigious quantity of wine and half-digested human flesh, and then fell sound asleep on the floor of the cave. And folks, it was payback time. Odysseus nodded and his waiting pointy stick team stepped out of the shadows. They approached the prone Cyclops and the Cyclops had fallen in just such a fashion that that massive gelatinous eyeball was pretty well about a foot off the ground. Perfect, absolutely perfect, pointy stick targeting territory. So, Knowing they had a few moments and wanting to get the blinding just right, Odysseus first held the sharp end of the pointy stick into the fire, until that end of the point was burning a fiery glowing red. And then the men on the pointy stick team, taking a good run at their target, well, they charged and plunged the sharp point of the stick deep into the heart of the Cyclops' eyeball. And Odysseus, on inspiration and a little bit of revenge, no doubt, then grabbed the pointy stick and twisted it like a corkscrew even deeper into the Cyclops' eyeball. Well, folks, the heat from the burning point started to cause the eyeball to boil, and soon pus and tears and blood were squirting and oozing all over the Cyclops' bloody forehead. And that, of course, is when the Cyclops woke up. And in a roar of anguish and pain, the Cyclops staggered to his feet and stood there, confused for a moment, in the middle of the cave. And then the Cyclops, recognizing that there was a foreign object jammed into his eye, while well, the Cyclops gripped that foreign object, that long pointy log of a stick with both hands, and in a terrible howl of rage and pain, the Cyclops attempted to pull the pointy stick out of his eye. But folks, Odysseus had skewered that stick onto the eyeball particularly well. So when the Cyclops pulled with the stick, the eyeball popped directly out of the eyeball's socket. And ladies and gentlemen, that eyeball, round, bloody red, and gelatinous, well, folks, that eyeball looked for all the world just like a gigantic peeled grape, stuck on the end of a cocktail toothpick, but quivering and a dripping blood. Now, ladies and gentlemen, by now the Cyclops was wide awake and bellowing in pain and terror and staggering blindly and still quite drunk around the cave. And really all that Odysseus and his men could do was dive for cover, stay out of the Cyclops' way, and then cover up their ears as best they could because the sound of the bellowing in pain Cyclops was, the men thought, the most terrifying thing that any of them had ever heard. That is, until the very next sound that Odysseus's men heard. 
From outside of the cave came the sound of voices, and Odysseus and his men, to their horror, immediately recognized that the voices they were hearing were of other cyclops. And they knew suddenly that this particular cyclops was not the solitary inhabitant of the island. There were more, and the other cyclops, hearing the bellowing, the screaming, and the terror emitting from this cave, had come to check up, if you will, on their brother Cyclops in the middle of the night. And as Odysseus and his men shirked even further back behind barrels and wheels of cheese, they heard the conversation that followed. From outside of the cave, they heard the first of the other Cyclops speaking. Polythemus! Brother! Are you hurt? Uh, Why are you making such a ruckus in the middle of the night? You know we other Cyclopes need our sleep. For the noise you're making, it sounds like somebody is trying to kill you. All the screaming and the fuss. Polythemus, are you okay? And folks, Polythemus, because now we know the name of our particular Cyclops, well, Polythemus, through his tears, his rage, his panic, and his pain, he answered back enthusiastically, explaining the situation inside the cave as best he could. Yes, yes, my friends, that is exactly it. You have stated exactly the reason why I scream. Nobody is in my cave, and nobody is trying to kill me. Well, the other Cyclopes, now half amused and half annoyed at being woken so rudely in the middle of the night, for what was obviously a nightmare, replied to Polythemus with more than a hint of exasperation in their voice. Well then, Polythemus, if nobody is trying to kill you, It is clear that you are simply having a bad nightmare. So, shut up, go back to sleep, and please quit disturbing our peace. You do know it is the middle of the night. But folks, poor Polythemus, protested mightily and again did his level reasoned best to explain the genuine situation that was happening to him inside of his cave. But if you leave me, brothers, I will be all alone in my cave with, with, with nobody. Exactly, the exasperated other Cyclopes replied. And then, shaking their heads, they returned to their own caves and their own good night's sleep. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you would allow me a brief little sidebar here, I would just like to pause and note that, as far as my research can tell, this is the first documented moment in world literature of what was eventually going to become Abbott and Costello's famous Who's On First joke. And if that's the case, then we owe a debt to Homer, our storyteller, for penning the very first version of said joke. But now back to our story. 
Now, folks, in some ways, the blinding of the Cyclops, Odysseus's plan, had actually succeeded brilliantly because now Polythemus was blind. But Odysseus, on further reflection, and especially when he recognized that there was an island full of Cyclopes, well, Odysseus recognized that they were at least now in as dangerous a situation as they had been a mere hour earlier. Because Odysseus knew that come the following morning, two things were going to happen. Either Polythemus, in distress, blind and badly hung over, would curl up in some sort of a cyclopean fetal position and simply refuse to leave his cave. And if that was the case, well, sometime mid-morning, his fellow Cyclopes' shepherds, recognizing that something must have been wrong with Polythemus the night before, well, they would come to the cave, roll away the rock, investigate, and then Odysseus and all of his men would immediately, of course, die. And the only other option for the following morning was pretty well as grim. And that was that Polythemus would wake up in a foul mood and, well, gamely attempt to begin his first day as a blind shepherd. And that would mean, of course, letting his sheep out to pasture. But Polythemus, of course, would be incredibly conscious of his new blindness and stand in the cave's entrance and subject anything man or beast attempting to pass through that entrance to a very thorough Polythemus pat-down. So either way you looked at it, Odysseus knew. In the morning, his men were as good as dead, unless Odysseus, sometime during the night, could formulate or improvise some brand new plan for how to get out of that cave. Well, our hero sat up all night thinking doing his polytropist best to come up with some new strategy. Odysseus reports as follows. My mind churned, trying to find the best way my comrades and I could avoid death, and I must have come up with a dozen schemes. Before, suddenly, a very good plan appeared in my mind. And folks, the very good plan that Odysseus came up with, the plan which ultimately saved his six remaining brave men, was actually a little bit of genius. Now, very frustrating for us, Odysseus does not let us in on the inner dialogue that led to his ultimate good plan. But I think, ladies and gentlemen, if we employ a little wee bit of forensic creativity, if you will, we can deduce how the plan evolved during the course of the night. So here's, folks, is what I imagine likely happened. Most of us, of course, when we're confronted with a problem, will we use as our starting point to solve that problem whatever has worked best for us in the past. And it is my supposition that Odysseus likely did the very same thing that night in the cave. And so Odysseus, confronted with a problem of human smuggling, if you will, well, Odysseus would have immediately recalled his most recent triumph. And of course, at Troy, Odysseus had found a way to smuggle men into a city by hiding them in the hollow belly of a wooden horse. So now, sitting in a cave with the problem of how to 
smuggle men out of a cave, my guess is that Odysseus fell back on the very same original scheme. I know what I'll do, Odysseus would have thought to himself. I will simply construct a large wooden horse inside of the cave this very night. But of course, folks, and Odysseus, once he really thought it through, recognized that there would have been a problem with that plan. Polythemus, a shepherd, well, he seemed to be familiar with sheep and goats, but there have been absolutely no indications on that island at all of there being horses present. So if Odysseus constructed a giant wooden horse, well, the Trojans, they knew and loved horses, but a horse wouldn't mean a thing to a cyclops. And so Odysseus had to go back to the creative drawing board. But folks, it would have only been a matter of time before he came up with the logical solution. I know what I will do. I won't build a giant wooden horse. I will build a giant wooden sheep. Polythemus knows all about sheep. He'll believe in a giant wooden sheep for sure. And of course, folks, then Odysseus getting to work on the architectural plans for said giant wooden sheep, would have immediately come up against another problem. And the problem was really simply one of size. In order to construct a sheep large enough that he could conceal himself and his six brave remaining comrades inside the belly of said sheep, well, the sheep would have absolutely no chance at all of making it through the front entrance of the cave it would simply be too tall. So, it was back to the drawing board for Odysseus. But undeterred, it would have only taken him a matter of time to recognize that what he needed was not one giant wooden sheep, but rather seven significantly smaller wooden sheep. And those sheep, of course, would easily fit through the front entrance of the cave. But that left, of course, Odysseus recognized the Polythemus pat-down, which was sure to happen in the cave's entrance. And Polythemus would very quickly recognize that the wooden ones didn't feel very convincing at all. And it was back to the drawing board for our boy Odysseus. How to make seven wooden sheep feel like real ones. Well, our Polytropus boy thought for a few moments, and then a grin spread over his face. Because the solution was quite obvious. I will simply strap a real live sheep onto the top of each of my seven wooden ones. Brilliant! Okay, I've got a plan. Time to start building wooden sheep. And ladies and gentlemen... Of course, at some later stage in the evening, hopefully not too far into the sheep construction project, well, the patently obvious would have occurred to our boy Odysseus. And he would have dispensed with the original wooden sheep concept altogether, and instead simply contented himself with tying each one of his men underneath the belly of a real live sheep. So that's what he did. And it worked like a charm. Come the morning when Polythemus staggered up and found his way to the entrance of the cave and pushed away the rock, well, Odysseus and his six men, all concealed under the bellies of sheep, made their way with the rest of the flock, 
by the polythemus pat down and out to the pasture. And ladies and gentlemen, if you will permit me a brief aside as your storytelling companion. I, of course, am as happy as you are that Odysseus and his six survivors managed to get out of that cave. But the truth is, I kind of wish that Odysseus had have stuck with his original seven wooden sheep plan. Because then we bards down through the ages would have had two famous stories to tell. The first, of course, the story of the famous Trojan wooden horse. But then, of course, we would have had an epic second song to sing of cunning Odysseus and his seven Trojan sheep. So back to our story. And folks, the truth is the story should really be ending right about now because Odysseus and his six surviving men were now outside of the cave and free. Polythemus had absolutely no idea that they had escaped. So all that Odysseus and his men had to do now was to very swiftly and, of course, very silently rush down to their boat waiting on the beach, board that boat, and row away from the island of the Cyclopes. And before Polythemus had returned to his cave in order to eat nobody for dinner, well, Odysseus and his crew would be long gone. But ladies and gentlemen, I fear I have to tell you that that is not how this particular Island of the Cyclopes episode ended. Instead, here is what happened. Odysseus and his crew did make it down to their ship. And then the crew, in short order, swiftly and as silently as possible, began to row hard away from the shore. That is, until Odysseus, their captain, ordered the crew to stop rowing. And then Odysseus, as the men sat there in dumbfounded confusion, Odysseus walked to the back deck of his ship and deliberately called out across the water, catching the attention of the blind Cyclops Polythemus, calling out, and taunting the Cyclops for his blindness. Hey you, Cyclops! You had no shame at eating your own guests. And now Zeus has paid you back. But ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus was making a terrible mistake. Because Polythemus, although blind, was still a dangerous adversary. And wasting no time at all, Polythemus had bent over and found himself a massive chunk of rock from the side of the mountain. And then listening in to Odysseus's teasing and taunting, Polythemus had triangulated in on Odysseus's words and lobbed that massive boulder with all of his might directly at Odysseus's ship. Folks, the boulder was half the size of the boat. And the only thing that saved Odysseus and his crew from instant death is that Polythemus actually threw the boulder a bit too far. The rock actually cleared the ship and crashed into the sea on the ship's far side. But that, well, that created a massive wave. And Odysseus's ship in an instant was washed right back up onto the beach of the island. 
And then it was only some desperate pushing, some polling, and some hard rowing from the frantic crew that got the beached boat back into the sea before Polythemus was down on the shore. But folks, even then, even after that close call, Odysseus simply could not shut up. His crew, in desperation, they, they tried to calm Odysseus. Are you crazy, Captain? Why do you want to provoke that savage again? That rock he threw at us, Captain, it almost wrecked our ship. If he hears us making any more sounds, he's going to know where we are. He'll smash our ship with another rock, Captain. Captain, we're not nearly out of his range. But folks, Odysseus simply would not stop. In fact, he was just getting started. I was still furious, and so I shouted at him again. And it was in that final shout that our clever, our cunning, our polytropous tactician, our hero Odysseus, then made the mistake of his life. Here's what he said. And Cyclops, if anybody ever asks you about your eye and how it was blinded, you tell them that it was great Odysseus, son of Laertes, from the island of Ithaca, who did it. Odysseus, son of Laertes, of Ithaca. Now, folks, earlier in this episode, we reviewed the deadly and dangerous power of names. And then I provided a quick primer on how to package and deliver an effective curse. And it needed three things. It needed the name of the man being cursed, it needed the name of that man's father, and it needed the name of that man's home kingdom. And Odysseus, of course, had just provided it all to the Cyclops Polythemus. I am Odysseus, son of Laertes, of the island kingdom, of Ithaca. Well, Polythemus the Cyclops was no fool, and he knew that his enemy had now handed him everything that Polythemus needed in order to call down a surgically precise curse. And so Polythemus wasted no time. He dropped to his knees, he raised his hands high into the sky, and he called on his god, Poseidon the god of the sea. Hear me, Poseidon, if I am truly your son, and if you are proud to be my father. Grant that this man, Odysseus, may never return to his home. And then, folks, Polythemus, in a stroke of curse-conjuring genius offered Poseidon, the god of the sea, an alternate Plan B curse. Ladies and gentlemen, Polythemus well understood that men's fates are sometimes fixed. And so even a deity as powerful as Poseidon would be limited if Odysseus was ordained or destined or fated to someday make it home, then Poseidon could not change that fate. But, Polythemus knew, 
Poseidon, if that was the case, could make Odysseus' journey home as miserable as possible. So Polythemus, a genius at cursing, continued his invocation to the god Poseidon. But if it is fated that Odysseus will see his family, then let him get home late and with no honor, in pain and lacking ships, and having caused the death of all of his men. And when he arrives home, may he find more troubles lurking for him in his very own house. Well, the curse flew from the island of the Cyclopes all the way up to Mount Olympus and into the Great Hall. And there in that great hall, Poseidon, sitting on his throne, heard the curse echoing through the throne room. And Poseidon nodded his head. Well, as to Odysseus and his crew, in shock and horror, and with the Cyclops' curse still ringing grimly in the crew's ears, they dipped to their oars into the wine-dark sea, and they rowed away from the land of the Cyclopes. Lost, cursed, and still searching for a homecoming. And that, of course, folks, is where we will leave this episode number two of Odyssey, the podcast. But just a quick reminder of the current death toll chart. You'll recall that Odysseus set out from Troy with 12 ships and 600 men. And now, already very early inside of his homecoming adventures, Odysseus has lost 78 of those good men. And ladies and gentlemen, Poseidon's curse hasn't yet even kicked in. So all I can promise you is that in upcoming episode number three of Odyssey the Podcast... Well, the death toll is going to rise, rather shockingly, in fact. And for we listeners, at least, if not for Odysseus and his men, episode three is going to promise a great deal of entertaining fun. But now it's time to talk a little bit about the post-story commentary. And ladies and gentlemen, I am going to beg you, I'm going to plead with you, I'm going to implore that you stick around and listen to this post-story commentary. Because I'm going to be offering you a primer on a concept which is absolutely crucial and critical if we are going to make sense of Odysseus's journey between now and the day when and if he ultimately makes it home. Now, the concept goes by a strange and ancient Greek word called xenia. X-E-N-I-A. And I think in the post-story commentary to follow, I found a particularly fun and indeed entertaining way of explaining that rather interesting and remarkable word to you. As for me, I'm going to hit pause here in just a brief moment. It's time to grab myself a quick shot of espresso to refill my water bottle. And then, ladies and gentlemen, in a moment, together, we are going to dive into a fun-filled primer on Xenia. 
So welcome back, folks, to the Post Story Commentary. Let me tell you two stories of two different travelers. One from our current century and one from the Bronze Age. And between the two stories, I think what Zinnia is will become abundantly clear. So let's start with a 21st century story. I want you to imagine that you are a traveler. You're away from home. You're on an extended business trip. You have traveled all day. Now, as evening approaches, you reach your destination city, and, of course, you need a place for the night. Primarily, you need a place to have a shower, to wash off the sweat and the grime from the day's work. You need a place where you can get yourself a good hot meal, and then you need a place to put your head that is safe and comfortable. In the morning, with any luck, you need a place that will offer you a breakfast and some sort of directions back to the freeway so you can safely head off on the rest of your traveling journey. So here's what you do. As you approach the town where you were going to spend the night, you would pull over safely onto the side of the road, then pull out your cell phone and do a quick internet search. What you'd be looking for, of course, is a listing of every hotel located inside of that town. Now, when you did that internet search, you would very reasonably apply a number of filters to the search engine. And the filters would be socioeconomic search engine filters. You would essentially make an accurate and honest appraisal of your budget and decide what sort of a hotel you could afford to stay in that night. So if you were not very well off, if you didn't have a great job, if you were just eking together in existence, so say you were a podcaster or something like that, well, what you do is you would put in a hotel search engine filter and find yourself referred to some of those rather sketchy motor ins that you find in the outskirts of every town. And that's where you would go. On the other hand, if you were ridiculously well off, yay for you, then what you would do is you would apply a different search engine filter and it would direct you to some of the more luxury establishments in the heart of the city. When you arrived at that luxury establishment, of course, after the valet had parked your car, you would present yourself at the hotel's front desk and make the customary and time-honored 21st century statement to your host. You would say something like this, Hello, I am a traveler. Here is my name. And here is my ID. And now, good sir, I would like to use this, my American Express Platinum card, to book a room. And miracle of miracles, after your host had discreetly run through a credit card check on your card, you would be provided with the most wonderful and spectacular and gracious of welcomes. Your host would give you a wonderful room, you would then be given directions to an absolutely first-rate steakhouse. And once you returned home from that steakhouse, you would have noted that the accommodating concierge working at the hotel would have cleaned and pressed your suit and clothes, polished your shoes, and procured for you prime tickets to that evening's theatrical or sporting event in the town. The next morning, you would wake up. Breakfast would be delivered directly to your room, along with a wonderful copy of the local newspaper, you would check out of the hotel and discover that your car had been cleaned, washed, and was waiting for you idling in the parking lot of the hotel. And you would be on your way. Now, if you weren't staying in that fantasy luxury hotel and you were staying in the little sketchy place in the outskirts of town on a more limited budget, well, that evening after you checked in the motel, you would pay in cash. You would order a pizza from the local place on the corner. You'd maybe knock back a couple of cold brews. You'd call it a night. You'd listen to the screaming couple in the room next door. You'd shake off as best you could the bed bugs. You'd wake in the morning. Uh, you'd hope that there's a little bit of hot water in the shower, and then you would gratefully be on your way, hoping that the next night was a little better than this. 
But either way, that was a way that we travel and go from town to town on business in the 21st century. And now let's contrast it with Bronze Age business travel so we can understand the Bronze Age concept of Xenia. In the Bronze Age, the first thing we need to understand is that there were no hotels and there were no restaurants. So, the Bronze Age Greek world developed an entirely different system for accommodating weary travelers. Here is what you, the traveler, would have done in 1200 BCE or so if you were living in the Greek peninsula. After a long day of travel, likely on foot, but if you were lucky or rich in a chariot, you, the weary traveler, would arrive on the outskirts of town. You would badly need a bath, food, and shelter for the night. So here's what you would do. You would pull over to the side of the road or the footpath and make a frank and realistic assessment of your social economic status and your means. You would ask the question, am I a dirt poor commoner? Am I royalty? Or am I something in between? And then, based on your socioeconomic self-assessment, you would enter the town, searching for a private dwelling commensurate with your status. If you were a dirt-poor storyteller, for example, you would seek out a shepherd's hut, likely in the town's outskirts. If you were a warlord king, you would head directly to the local palace. And if you were something in between, well, you would search out a private dwelling in the current city, which most resembled the dwelling which you lived at in your own city. And then here's what you would do. You would simply walk up to that dwelling and knock on the door. A servant would answer, or the owner if it was a poor dwelling. And here's what you would say. Hello, Xenos. I am a Xenos, and I seek Xenia. And the moment you said it? Well, if Zeus's law of Xenia was practiced in that home, the person inside the house, would simply reply as follows. Welcome, Xenos. Come on in and receive Xenia. Now, folks, an explanatory note is necessary here. The one Greek word, the ancient Greek word, Xenos, includes a bundle of concepts, including host, guest, stranger, friend, and foreigner, all bundled up and all using the very same word. So, you, the Xenos, the stranger, the foreigner, the guest, would step into the home of the Xenos host or friend. Your host would graciously welcome you and then thoughtfully set aside your luggage and any weapons that you happen to have on your person. Your duty, of course, then, at that point, as a Xenos guest, was to, well, not raise an objection as your host disarmed you. The whole process of Xenia involved a huge amount of mutual trust on both sides of the equation. So, you were stepping into a stranger's house, and your stranger, of course, was allowing somebody into his house, so it was only reasonable that weapons be taken out of the equation on both sides. And then, your host would wash your dusty feet, or if it were a wealthy household, instruct their servants to come give you a hot bath and a professional rubdown. Following that would come a meal, complete with the very best food and drink that that household could offer. 
Now, if you were a Xenos in a very, very poor home, then the host would do their very best, and that might mean giving you the hovel's only drinking mug, and in some cases, if necessary, the hovel's only food. But if you were in a rich household, well, then no expenses would be spared on procuring the absolutely best food and wine that that household had on hand. And finally, finally, after your meal, after your bath, after you have been thoroughly and properly welcomed, only at that stage would your Xenos host turn to you and inquire. So, who are you anyway? Where are you from? And what business takes you on the road? Now, ladies and gentlemen, we find this absolutely shocking. But inside of the ancient Bronze Age world of Xenia, you provided food, shelter, accommodation, absolutely no questions asked to anybody who knocked on your door and requested Xenia. And only after you had provided the very best food, shelter, and accommodation, which you could possibly manage, only then would you be so presumptuous as to ask your guests name and occupation, family, and business. Well, at that stage, you would be invited to stay as a guest, and your host would assure you that you were welcome to stay for as many days as possible, but there was a tacit understanding inside of the, the rules of Zania, which everybody knew, and and that tacit understanding was that as a guest, you did not overstay your welcome. There was a practical reason for this. Your your host was laying out the very best possible food and drink for you every day, and, and it was considered a, a gross violation of, of good taste, manners, and Zania to, well, to overly tax a host who was doing this. So your host would assure you you were welcome to stay as long as you wanted and and put up a great fuss when you announced that it was time to leave. But the understanding was you only stayed for a few days. Well, the really amazing thing about Zinnia is, is when you got to your departure and you had headed out to your chariot, assuming it was a wealthy establishment, or headed out to, well, your walking stick, if it was a poor hovel, your host would accompany you. And then if it was at all within the host's means... The host would then provide you with the most wonderful of things, a gift upon departure. Yes, your host would actually give you a guest gift. And then if the host could at all manage it, the host would provide you with transit, directions, and possibly even a traveling companion to help you on your way through unknown territories that the host knew well. And if you could, of course, your final obligation to your host was to reciprocate and provide your host with a glorious gift in exchange for the host's hospitality, first as a form of thank you, and second as some means of actually defraying some of the costs of actually being a guest for those days. Now, just a few final points about Zinnia. It was an intergenerational arrangement. In other words, once you had extended hospitality to a Zenos guest, then that Zenos guest was expected to not only extend hospitality back to you if you were visiting his particular home territories, but the families, the sons, the grandsons, the great-grandsons were expected to carry on the extension of the hospitality between the two families for generations. So when properly practiced, Zania was the ancient Bronze Age society's best insurance of peace. And in Homer, at least, Zania violated is almost always a guarantee of a profound breakdown of the social order and even of war. Just a little aside, a lot of you listening right now, 
if you're unfamiliar with the Greek classics and you grew up more like I did inside of the world of Shakespeare, well, you know inside of Shakespeare's world, there's an overarching concept, a moral code that governs that world, which, well, scholars refer to as the great chain of being. And in all of Shakespeare's plays, particularly inside of his tragedies, you'll see that almost every tragedy that happens in Shakespeare is precipitated when there has been a violation or a shaking of the order outlined inside of that great chain of being. And, and then order isn't restored in any of those plays until, well, the great chain of being is once again properly being practiced. So a, a great analogy that might be useful here is the great chain of being is to Shakespeare's world as Zinnia is to the world of Homer. And, and one final little thing about Zinnia. During the Bronze Age of this story, the Greek gods often took on human form and walked the face of the earth. So consequently, you practiced Xenia with great care because when a stranger arrived at your doorstep, a Xenos, seeking the hospitality ordained and required by the gods, well, there was always the possibility that that stranger was actually a deity in disguise. And you had better make darn sure that you provided the proper Xenia to that deity. Zeus, king of the gods, were he more poetic, might have very well said something like this concerning the rule. Inasmuch as you provide Xenia to the least of these my brothers, you provide Xenia to me. Now, if you've been with me for 20 episodes of Trojan War, the podcast, you've already seen two clear incidents of Xenia earlier in the story. The first, of course, is the most famous or infamous violation of Xenia in the entire history of Epic. And, and that has to be, well, the Xenia that Menelaus, warlord king of Sparta, provides when a young Trojan prince named Paris comes to visit. By all accounts, Menelaus does everything absolutely flawlessly as the Xenos host, and then, of course, his Xenos guest, Paris, Prince of Troy, commits the ultimate Xenia outrage and runs back to Troy with Menelaus's wife. That is just Xenia gone wrong and beyond the pale. And then there's the wonderful, delightfully comic episode that actually happens inside of the contents of Homer's Iliad. There's this great scene in, inside of the battle raging between the Greeks and the Trojans where a mighty Greek champion, uh, Diomedes, encounters on the battlefield a mighty Trojan champion named Glaucus. And the armies separate around them so that the great champions can fight out on their own to the death. And, and as Diomedes of the Greeks and Glaucus of the Trojans are standing, staring each other down before the fight... And, and reviewing for each other and bragging about their vast military resumes and their great exploits, suddenly in the course of all that bragging and reviewing of names and resumes, it occurs to Diomedes and, and to Glaucus almost at the same time that, well, these two guys are actually already in a generational bond of Xenia between the two families. Glaucus turns to Diomedes and says, well, my father was a Xenos guest at, at your grandfather's house, Diomedes. And, and Diomedes says, well, Glaucus, and we certainly can't be fighting with each other because we're, we're in this bonds of friendship that goes back years and generations. So then Glaucus and Diomedes, instead of actually fighting with each other, put down their weapons, uh, appropriately exchange guest host gifts with each other right there in the battlefield and, and promise that as soon as the Trojan War is over, they will make every effort to visit each other's palaces and estates and, and celebrate Xenia together. 
So I'd like to conclude this episode by, well, doing a quick review of Zinnia as we've seen it inside of Homer's Odyssey and the incident you already know, which is the amazing story of Zinnia gone wrong inside of the Cyclops' cave. First of all, Odysseus and his men enter the Cyclops' cave. Remember that Polythemus is not home at the moment, he is outside at the pasture. Now, according to the laws of Zinnia, Odysseus and his men have every right to enter the cave so long as they respect the goods in the cave and they don't run away stealing them. You will recall that a few of Odysseus's men turned to him and said, well, let's just grab some cheese and get out while the getting is good. But Odysseus, ever mindful of the rules of Zinnia, said, no, we will wait for our host to return and then we will beg the proper Zinnia. Well, then, of course, Polythemus had returned to the cave. And it's very telling that Polythemus immediately did not say, welcome, Zeno's guest, and offered to wash the men's feet. Instead, the moment that Polythemus saw the Greeks, he responded in a very inappropriate fashion. He turned to them and asked them who they were. Strangers, who are you? Why are you here? And of course, this is a gross violation of Zinnia. Polythemus had not yet offered his strangers a wash or a meal. Now, at this point in the episode, Odysseus had, still hoping for the best with the Cyclops, gently reminded Polythemus of his duty of Zinnia. Uh, recall precisely what Odysseus said. We have come here as suppliants, in the hope that you will offer us your hospitality and, and even give us some of the gifts that is proper for a host to provide his guest with. So, please, kind sir, don't deny us. Remember the gods. We stand before you as suppliants, and Zeus himself is the champion of suppliants and strangers. Now, at that point, if Polythemus was a practitioner of Zinnia, he would have immediately remembered his obligations, apologized profusely for his gross temporary madness, and then offered all the possible generosity he could. But instead, Polythemus, with a reply that was so ridiculously on the nose that we know that Polythemus is a bad guy beyond the pale, Polythemus responded as follows. I, Polythemus, care nothing for Zeus or for any god. I would only spare you and your men because I was in the mood to, not out of any rule of the gods. And then, of course, Polythemus commits the ultimate violation of Zania by, instead of offering his guests a meal, Polythemus turns his guests into a meal. Then later, he mocks and inverts the rule of Zinnia. He turns to Odysseus and says, I will give you a guest gift, Zenos. I will eat you last. And finally, it's appropriate to note that the method ultimately used to bring Polythemus down, the wineskin of the rare and expensive wine, had actually been brought to the cave by Odysseus as a reciprocal host gift. Had Polythemus practiced proper Zinnia, he would have received that gift when Odysseus and his men chose to depart the cave. When I was doing my research on this episode and looking into some of the finer points of Zinnia, I, of course, was on the internet doing a search. And when I typed in the word Zinnia, X-E-N-I-A, well, wouldn't you know it, if the first hit that came up was a fact that there is a small town, a town in Ohio, United States of America, with a population of 26,000 people, and the name of that town was, you guessed it, Zinnia, X-E-N-I-A. Well, I can only do my best to try to convey to you my podcaster's delight at that wonderful little bit of information. And, and, and folks, 
I was already envisioning taking a flight from where I live in Ottawa, Canada, flying to Zenia, Ohio, USA. And, and my plan was simple. I thought, I will fly to Zenia, USA. I will get off the plane at the airport. I will take a taxi into town. And then I will wander through the streets of that town. It can't be too big, only 26,000 people looking for homes that look much like my own in Ottawa, Canada. And when I see one of those homes that looks much like my own, well, I knew what I would do. I would walk up to the door of those private homes. I would knock on the door, and when somebody answered, I would present myself and say, Hello, Zenos. I am a Zenos, and I am here at your home, seeking hospitality. Will you please wash my feet and provide me with a meal, and then a bed for the night? Well, I thought it sounded wonderful, and I was just preparing to book the ticket when I noticed something a little disturbing and alarming on the town of Zinnia's corporate website. There were three hotels in that town, and ladies and gentlemen, any city with a hotel is not a city that practices proper Zinnia. So, if you are listening to this podcast, and if you happen to be a citizen of the town of Zinnia, Ohio, USA, I would like to extend this personal offer to you. If you ever find yourself in Ottawa, Canada, contact me, then come visit. And when you arrive at my home, I will provide you with a meal, a bed for the night, and if you smile nicely, I might even consider washing your muddy feet. Have a great day, everybody. See you in our next episode. Bye for now.